Om, lead us from the unreal to the real. Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. The path of Advaita Vedanta, which is what I am calling Jnana Yoga and for this purpose of this seminar or this workshop. Um, no, no, retreat, what am I saying? Seminar, workshop, I'm getting used to the academic language. <laughs> it's a retreat. Advaita Vedanta, it drops some bombshells. That we require these four yogas to become free of bondage. Advaita Vedanta says, no. You are already free of bondage. You don't have to become one with God. You are one with God. What is the purpose of these four yogas? What is the purpose of spiritual life then? The purpose is to correct the error that you are not free. That you are not already Brahman. That Brahman alone is real. The world is an appearance. And you are none other than Brahman. Brahma Satyam, Jagat Mithya, Jiva Brahmai Vanapara. This is already a fact right now. As much true for you or I as it is true for Sri Ramakrishna or Masharada or Swami Vivekananda, all the enlightened people. Absolutely true right now. The only difference is we don't think it's true. We feel that no, no, no. It may be true ultimately, but right now I am this person. And I have to do a lot of things. Four yogas I have to do for 40 years and then only I'll be somewhere near that. No, you are already that, right now you always were. Our whole problem is this error, thinking, feeling that it is not so. This error has to be corrected. If you have this error, if we honestly feel to ourselves that, no, I cannot honestly say with conviction that I am Brahman, I am the Absolute, I am free of suffering. In that case, that's an error and that has to be corrected. And that correction of error, how will it happen? Where does error come from? Any kind of error comes from ignorance. The snake is seen as a, the rope is seen as a snake. Why? It's an error. Why? Because the rope is not known as a rope. The truth is not known. Because of our ignorance of the truth that it's a rope, we tend to see it as a snake. And the solution is always go to the root of the problem. The root of, the, of error is ignorance and ignorance is removed by knowledge. All we require is the knowledge of our real nature. And that is communicated through Vedanta. The, our real nature is already there. So I like that Mullah Nasruddin story um, where you know, Mullah Nasruddin, there are many, many nice stories. Uh, he, he, is, uh, he is a trader. He used to go to a neighboring country trading with his caravan. And um, he would cross the border, the border guards. The, the chief of the border guards always felt that Mullah Nasruddin was a smuggler. So he kept on checking him, double check. You know, please step out of the line, special checking. TSA? So, double check. This fellow looks suspicious. 
so I, I get some special checking sometimes because of this dress, you know. So, <laughs> and it's interesting. Uh, they, I think they also, they can't be, uh, you can't fault them because I think they have a quota, how many special, how much effort they have made. So they have to select somehow and he looks strange enough. So the, the once I came in from, I think it was from England to New York. When I entered, they said, please come to this room, special room. I said, oh, all right, special checking. And the room, everybody was either wearing a burqa <laughs> or they looked like some, uh, you know, uh, gangster, their tattoos and, and things like that. I heard, why would you dress like that to come here? He's <laughs> definitely going to get checked. And the most interesting thing was the person sitting next to me, also for special checking, he was uh, an Arab with a long white dress up to the uh, ankles. And uh, just like the Arabs, will, in fact, almost like a cartoon you will see in um, caricature of a terrorist if you see in Hollywood movie, like that. He has a backpack, which is not letting go. And he has a long beard and a covering and, and he's muttering in Arabic. <laughs> now, obviously, you're going to get pulled aside for special checking if you, if you <laughs> behave like that. And so in the middle of that, I was there. So this Mullah Nasruddin was always pulled aside for special checking. But they could never find out what he was smuggling. Every time. Many years later, the chief of the border guard, he had retired. One day he met Mullah Nasruddin, in a, you know, like a, for a cup of tea. In India we call dhaba, like a roadside tea, tea stall. He met him there. And he said, hey. Do you remember me? I was in those days, I was this uh, guard, I was there. And you used to come with all, all your goods loaded on the donkey and then we would check. I know you are smuggling, but everything was legal. I mean, I could not find anything which you are smuggling. So now I have retired, you don't have any worry. Tell me, what is it you are smuggling? Milana Sardin said, very simple, the donkey. So it's right under our nose, and we don't see it because of our preconception. Um, Sri Ramakrishna told the story of the um, diamond, the washerman who found the diamond. And the washerman in India, he takes the clothes and he beats it on, I mean, he scrubs it and all on the on the bank of the river and cleans it and gives it back to you. So the diamond, he didn't know what a diamond was. He thought it's a nice, strange stone, but nice to scrub the clothes. So he would scrub the clothes with the diamond. And um, after some time, he got a doubt. That something is strange about this stone, this rock. Let me show it to my friend, the vegetable seller, who is more knowledgeable than me. And then he goes and tells the vegetable seller, you look at this, is this anything valuable? And the vegetable seller says, I think so. I will give you brinjals, a bag full of brinjals for it. Though that, that is quite a lot for the poor washerman, he says, let, let me hold on to it. Let me ask somebody else who knows. And finally, goes to more and more educated people. Finally, he goes to a diamond merchant who says, wow, this is the best diamond that I've ever seen, the largest and the best diamond. I will give you 10 million rupees for it. And so all the wants of the washerman, poor washerman, all the wants, all the poverty was removed. Though he had it all the time, he didn't know its value that it could solve all his problems. He had it. Not only he had it, he was using it. 
but for scrubbing clothes. We have it, that which can remove every want of ours. Right now, right here it can do that. But we don't recognize it for what it is. We are using it. What are we using it for? We are using it right now. Here, you are using it. You are using it for seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. You are using it for thinking, loving, hating, desiring, inquiring. You are using it for being happy. You are using it for being unhappy. That thing. That inner awareness, which we all have. We all feel it. But we don't know what it is. Vedanta just introduces us to it. What does Vedanta do? If everything is perfect, then why do we need Vedanta? Vedanta says, correct. If you feel everything is perfect in your life, then you don't need me. All our problems are due to ignorance. And the solution is knowledge. It sounds like a... We say we have heard it so many times, we don't, uh, we don't see what a tremendous assertion that is. If our problems are due to ignorance, there are really no problems. If solution is due to <laughs> knowledge, that solution is already there with you. In, Veda, in Hindi they say, what does Vedanta do? Praptasya prapti nivrittasya nivritti. Vedanta gives you what you already have. And it removes what was never there. A samsara which does not exist is removed. That absolute nature which you are, that Brahman, Satchidananda, that perfection which religion, spirituality promises, you already are that. Vedanta gives it to you. Gives it to you means, within quotes, introduces. Look, here it is. And we, when we become enlightened, we say, oh, I always was that. My God, I never thought of it. See, the four yogas, in the context of the four yogas, Bhakti says, your lack of devotion is the problem. Yoga says, your lack of, your restlessness of mind is the problem, hence meditate. Bhakti says, lack of devotion is the problem, hence have faith. But Vedanta says, no, 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 it's not a question of faith. It's not even a question of meditation or not meditating. It's a question of knowing or not knowing, realizing or not realizing. So, in Vedanta, the spiritual journey is from ignorance to knowledge. I often say, it's not a journey in space. You don't have to go somewhere, heaven, a holy place, Vrindavan, Vaikuntha, Kailasha, heaven, no. You don't have to wait that after death, after uh, the next, people ask, Sri Ramakrishna was an avatar, that's not so interesting. But he said he will come again. Didn't he say that? <laughs> Very much interested. What will happen? This time he came, what has happened to you? Nothing. <laughs> Next time he comes, I can predict. Nothing will happen to you. <laughs> not after the coming of the Messiah or the next incarnation? No. You say, yes, yes, that's alright. But after Samadhi, right? No. So all that Samadhi will reveal to you is what you already have. Alright, after enlightenment, Brahma Jnana, enlightenment, that's what Advaita promises, after enlightenment, then after enlightenment it's not that you will become Brahman, it, you will see that you always were Brahman. So this is the um, bombshell which it drops. Another thing, it, bombshell it drops is that 
the method is knowledge the method in bhakti is emotion it uses the heart our passions our desires and channels them godward the method in yoga is the mind it concentrates the mind focuses the method in jnana is understanding the faculty of understanding i am not saying knowledge people keep saying knowledge but uh, people are misunderstand the moment you say knowledge it means maybe reading a lot of books knowing many things not in that sense jnana yoga i sometimes like to use the term insight yoga it's just one thing that you have to know or more than know it's one insight that we need that's all just one breakthrough one insight and then it's done so what is that and this is also the one yoga the third bombshell is what was the first one the first one is you are already that what was the second one you just need insight knowledge knowledge is the way it's a very big thing to say because all we have been programmed to do things therefore in bhakti it's not difficult to understand we have to believe and worship fine yoga not difficult to understand we have to do this kind of meditation fine karma yoga i understand i have to do unselfish work jnana yoga after even when we say yes it the method is knowledge i understand understand but after listening to a class for a few months few years they'll come and say now what do we do see word do i want something to do i remember i used to attend the classes of a sadhu in the himalayas and haridwar very great teacher of vedanta in his lifetime itself is rega- regarded as a jivan mukta enlightened person a young monk comes to him in front of me i, was, I saw a young man who has become a monk comes to him and asks so i have taken sanyasana i become a monk in a vedantic monk now what do i do the swami chuckled he said in hindi ha wahi to kya karoge ab what will you do now <laughs> what will you do now some of you know swami atmapriyananda ji he is the vice chancellor of our university when he became a monk he told us the story so when you become a sanyasi you are given by the guru the mahavakya aham brahmasmi i am brahman now before that we have been given other practices for example when you get mantra diksha you are given a mantra to repeat when we get brahmacharya diksha there is another gayatri mantra to repeat and there other practices are there so once you become a sanyasi certain things are given to you including this mahavakya mahavakya is the identity statement aham brahmasmi tatvamasi pragyanam brahma ayam atma brahma this or they all mean the same thing this very self is the absolute that, that thou art i am brahman on consciousness is this awareness i feel inside just now this scrubbing stone is the diamond stone is the diamond right now i am atma brahma this very self is brahman this very awareness is brahman absolute but how we think how so when they became monks he said you get a chance after taking the vows of monasticism becoming the newly minted monk so first your 10 years brahmachari a novice then you become a monk one and the next day it's all changed for you now you are wearing this dress and uh, you don't have that sacred tuft of hair anymore this is clean shaven um and now you are swami so and so not brahmachari so and so and if and just in case you are feeling too grand 
senior Swami will tell you. All that has happened is you have gone from being the senior most Brahmachari to the junior most Swami. <laughs> anyway, one thing is you get, you get a chance to ask a question to the president of the order, who is the only one authorized to give you the vows of sannyasa. So they all went in their time when they became monks, Atma Priyanji and his cohort, here they will say cohort. <laughs> and the question they asked was, this Mahavakya, I am Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. So how many times are we to repeat it? Mantra, you see? The whole, that same psychology is there, repeating the mantra. How many times are we to realize it? And Swami Gambhirānandaji was the president of the order. He was a man of few words. In, in Sanskrit, Gambhira means profound and serious. And whatever it means, it means distinctly non-humorous. <laughs> Not a person to be um, taken lightly. So he was sitting, he was president of the order. He would sit with his eyes closed. And Swami Atapriyanji showed this. He said, eyes closed. And they came and said, Swami, we had this question. Aham Brahmasmi, I am Brahman. How many times are we to repeat it? He said, it is not for repetition, it is for realization. Any other question? No, you may go. <laughs> Same thing, it is for realization. As that Swami said in Uttarakhand, Vahito, kya karo? what will you do now? Yes, you are right, what will you do now? <laughs> the very idea, this question that I have to do something now, shows that, I have not understood it. No, no, I have understood what you said, but now what do I do? You have not understood. <laughs> you have not understood. Another great teacher of Vedanta was there in our uh, training center. Again, this story is from Atma Priyanji. His name was Mukhyanandaji. And uh, I've seen him in his old age. He was a great Vedantin, non-dualist. He had a little beard. And which is rare for monks of our order. We are usually clean shaven, a little beard and a little long hair. And he always used to feel hot. So he had a little bamboo fan. And his way of blessing, all senior monks bless if you, if you bow down. His way of blessing was to tap you on the head with the fan. <laughs> I've been tapped many times. You know. <laughs> his way of introducing this concept of knowledge versus doing something. He would come to the class like this. All the novices would be sitting and he would come. He had a high-pitched voice. He would say, um, The grass is green! And all the young novices would look at each other, confused. Yes? The grass is green! No? We don't get it. What do you mean, grass is green? Get me a glass of water! Immediately one of them should have, ah, yes, that I can do. Fool, sit down. <laughs> Here is the difference between the Advaitic approach and every other approach. Get me a glass of water is a commandment to action. All this is a very a simplified way of putting a lot of things which Shankaracharya has said, distinguishing the Jnana Kanda from the Karma Kanda. The Vedas have a ritualistic portion and a knowledge portion. A ritualistic portion is full of do's and don'ts. And they may be difficult to practice, but you know what you're supposed to do. It's very clear. The Upanishad portion, the whole point is to inform us and point out something so that we get an insight into our real nature. 
It is to tell us the value of the diamond. It is to point out the donkey, which we are missing all the time. So grass is green is like that. It's a factual statement. That thou art, aham brahmasmi, it's a statement like that. Grass is green may not be a useful statement to you, but aham brahmasmi is a most useful statement to us. Why is it useful? Because if you understand it, if you grasp it, all your problems are solved. But all problems, of course, remember, what did the Buddha say? Second arrow. But it's solved immediately. That's the other bombshell which Advaita Vedanta drops. Another one. That what Advaita is trying to tell us is instantaneous right now. And even better, it is effortless. I can see many smiles coming. It's, oh, All the others seem so much hard work. Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, <laughs> Raja Yoga. And it takes so much time. But Jnana Yoga, what Advaita Vedanta says is instantaneous, right here, right now, effortless also. It may take a lot of time and a lot of effort to come to that instant. <laughs> that is there. <laughs> that is there. That's the fine print. <laughs> Often you find there's a whole popular movement of Neo-Advaita. The direct method teachers, very popular in USA and in some other parts of the world, Western world now. Um, who say these things, what I have said just now. And they, they even go further, which I will not say. They say that the other yogas are not necessary. What is the need for all of that? You are Brahman. Does Brahman need to meditate? No, don't meditate. Does Brahman, whom will you be devoted to? You are Brahman. There is no other God to be devoted to. So no bhakti. And uh, karma yoga doing good to the world. The world is an appearance. It's false. It's an illusion. What good will you do? Will you start uh, organizations to help people and feed the poor in your dreams? Once you know it's a dream. No, you won't. None of them are necessary. You realize you are Brahman, finished. But you will notice one thing, a couple of things about that. One is, in most cases, the teachers, I'm not saying they are false or they are wrong. Some of them do, I feel, have a deep insight. They have made a breakthrough. But the problem is, you will notice those teachers, they have spent many, many years searching themselves. They've put in 10, in each case, 10, 20, 30 years, or even if it was some, some of them spontaneously awakened, quite a lot of struggle at that time. So that is there. The second thing you will notice is those whom they are teaching this to, not many seem to be benefited. You will see people surrounding, they suddenly feel, I got it, I got it, after some time again. <laughs> Why? Why? Even in the few cases where the message they are transmitting is correct, genuine, powerful, direct, very good. Unless the preparation is there, it will not be received. Transmitter is working, but receiver is not working. So switch on the receiver and tune it, it requires karma yoga, bhakti yoga, raja yoga. Even for this direct path, the other yogas are preparatory and necessary. This was well understood in India for thousands of years. Otherwise, they wouldn't have said it. One great teacher of Advaita in Uttarakhand, talking about bhakti, one of the greatest teachers, I, I've never met him, I've read, unfortunately those books are in Hindi, so it's not accessible to the English reading public. Little bit that is available. So uh, they're being asked, what is the role of bhakti and jnana? Is it necessary for each other? 
He said, for those who are on the path of bhakti, jnana is not necessary. Not necessary means whatever is necessary, God will give. You, if you hold on to the path of bhakti sincerely, whatever is necessary will come to you. You need not worry separately about going to um, Vedanta retreat. You practice your bhakti. But he said, for those on the path of jnana, bhakti is, is a must. Or it, bhakti is very useful. Do you know why? Because our real problem at the beginning of spiritual life and for a long time are the impurities of our minds. Are the uh, problems in uh, samskaras in our mind. And knowledge, the teachings which we get from Vedanta, they, at least at the beginning, they work at the level of the intellect. So many things we may begin to understand, but we'll find we are unable to do it in life. We are unable to manifest them in day-to-day -day life. Why? Because the obstructions are at the level of our samskaras. The heart is the problem, not the intellect. And bhakti works directly at the heart level. See, the, uh, to oversimplify, I did not know these things, that I am Brahman, the world is an appearance, we are one reality. Now I know these things. That's one level. But I want the world. That's another level. So that I want level still remains untouched, even when the I know changes. Do you see where I'm coming at? Now this leads to an imbalance, where you will feel, I have understood many things, but I'm not able to do it in life. Why am I not able to do it in life? Plato said famously, to know the good is to be good. We immediately feel, no, no, that's wrong. He is right actually, but that's wrong because the problem is with us. To know the good is to be good when you are a fully integrated person. What you know to be good, you will do it. If you see the lives of saints, Sri Ramakrishna and others, what they thought to be right, they did it, they had no problems doing it. They went straight ahead and did it. Even the most difficult spiritual practices, they did it. But we have a contradiction between our heart and our head. Because our desires are not purified. What bhakti does for the jnana yogi, for the person on the path of knowledge, what bhakti does for you, it purifies the heart. Devotion to God, it turns the desires which are flowing word towards the world, it turns them towards God. So that they are no longer obstruct, obstruction to your jnana. Even more, it invites the blessings of God on your spiritual path. Very powerful help. There is a way of trying to walk by yourself. There is a, Sri Ramakrishna said, the child who tries to walk holding the hand of the father may slip and fall. But if the father holds your hand, then it's unlikely to slip and fall. So, when the father holds your hand, means when you take the refuge of God. So the, all the yogas are useful uh, for jnana. So this is another bombshell that it is directly available and effortlessly so, but fine print preparations are necessary. Alright. It is also the only one of the yogas because it is directly available, instantaneous, it can be demonstrated here and now. So let's see. We have half an hour for enlightenment. No. No, more than that. We have one hour, one full hour for enlightenment. Very good. Yeah. 
you know, Ashtavakra, one of the most radical texts of Advaita Vedanta. There are many, many texts. One of the most radical texts of Advaita Vedanta, Ashtavakra, in the very first chapter he says, Yadi deham prithakritya chiti vishramya tishthasi adhuneva sukhi shanto pandhamukto bhavishyasi If you can see yourself as not the body and rest in pure awareness, adhuneva, right now, sukhi, perfectly happy, chanta, Peaceful, beyond all suffering. Bandha mukta, free of bondage. Bhavishyas, you will be. Right now, you will be enlightened, attain to bliss, transcend suffering, be free of bondage, moksha, you will get moksha. When? Now. How? If you can see yourself as not the body, but as consciousness. And rest in that. Yadi, if, if. And that if is a big point. If basically means spiritual life. That we have already discussed. The difference between ordinary religion, pravritti dharma and nivritti dharma. In karma yoga we talked. So I want enlightenment. So that is the if, if you want that. Deham prithakritya. And so let us see, can we demonstrate it right now? See, here it is. The method of, let's take up, I'll quickly talk about three methods by which we can have this insight, which I talked about, this one insight, three methods. The Drigdrishya Viveka method is my favorite. You often used to talk about that. Remember, these, none of these three methods are actually going to give you Advaita. It's only the first step to Advaita. There's one more step to be taken. So always remember in Advaita, not two. There are two steps. I've given a talk. I've given a talk. Two steps to not two. Mm. The first step is not Advaita. First step you will see as we do it, you will see. Some of you will feel, this is just what we talked about in Sankhya. The first step is entirely borrowed from Sankhya. But the second step takes you to Advaita. And you cannot take the second step directly. The first step has to be taken. Two steps to not two. So, Drigdrishya Viveka, I talk about that. One Uttarakhand Sadhu, I remember he said, in Hindi, I'll tell you the translation. These people these who keep talking about Drigdrishya, seer and the seen, these are unripe, immature non-dualists. <laughs> Why? Here's a point. Because, he says, that's only the first step. That's not non-duality. But still, we must take the first step. And then only. How does it work? It works like this, in four stages. From the, it starts with a very simple and deeper and deeper and deeper. From the physical to the subtle to the causal, it goes like that. So let's see, we start with the easiest. Rupam drishyam lochanam drik. It says, the seer and the seen are separate. The seer and the seen are always separate. You are seeing, the simple act of seeing, physically seeing, and what you are seeing, this book. Literally your eyes and the book are different. 
Your eyes can see the book only because the book is separate from your eyes. Your eyes are the seer and the book is the seen. And remember, we always identify ourselves with the seer. In any situation, when you are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, your experience is, I am the one who is seeing and this is seen. These are seen. I am the one who is tasting. This is a taste. You never feel that when you are eating the food, the food is tasting me. I am tasting the food. So I am always on the side of the experiencer, the subject, and the, everything else is an object to me. So the seeing, the eyes are the seer, and the forms are seen. And the, the forms are different from the eyes. True, the forms are different from the eyes. If the forms were not different, you could not see them. In fact, the limit of the eyes, what the eyes cannot see are the eyes themselves. You see, the eyes cannot see themselves. You don't seem convinced. So what about a mirror, Swami? You are seeing a reflection of the eyes in the mirror. The way the eyes are seeing the mirror themselves, that way the eyes are unable to see themselves. Yeah. You see a selfie. That's a picture of your eyes. Though that's not the eyes seeing the eyes directly. So the eyes can only see something separated at a distance from them. Separated. Now, consider the eyes themselves. My eyes are open, my eyes are closed. I could see so well earlier, now I need glasses. All these things about the eyes, the eyes themselves become the object. To whom? Who is the subject now? The mind. Who is thinking all these things? The mind. The mind is observing the eyes. Why only the eyes? The eyes, the ears, the nose, the skin, the tongue, the entire body in fact. It becomes an object to the mind. The mind considers the body. So the mind is the seer and the eyes or the entire body is the seen. Seer and seen are different. Clearly mind is different from the eyes. Are you with me? It's actually a very simple observation. Mind is different from the eyes. That's why uh, your, uh, your psychiatrist and your ophthalmologist are two different people. <laughs> uh, because your mind is different from the eyes. Mind is the seer, the eyes, the other sense organs, the entire body, they're the scene, it's an object. And which one are you? Are you the body or the mind? You'll always say I'm the mind because I always see myself as the subject, not as an object. If, and always check with your experience. That's the beauty of Vedanta. All these are not theoretical constructs. They may seem to be nice things to learn and sometimes they're surrounded with fancy Sanskrit vocabulary, but they're always referring to your living experience right now. Which is not true of, say, yoga. Yoga demands practice and then you will attain those experiences. But eyes are the seer and the microphone is the scene. It's living experience. Mind is the seer and the body is something that is seen. It's living experience right now. See it in your experience. Then go deeper. Third. Rupam drishyam lochanam drik. Tad drishyam drik tu manasam. The eyes are the seen and the mind is the seer. Go deeper. Drishya dhivrittaya sakshi. Your mind. What, now we know. What is the mind? The vrittis. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, activity of the buddhi, activity of the ego, activity of the manas, we saw. So chitta vritti, those are all experienced. Are they not experienced? Happy. Happy feeling. I am happy. 
He was a happy song, became very popular. Yes. So you are feeling happy. That's why you can song, sing the happy song. There was also another song, Lama song. Uh, it says, uh, Happy Lama, uh, what? Happy Lama, then um, Mama Lama, then, uh, then me Mentally Disturbed Lama is a song. So even the Lama knows it's mentally disturbed. And this, this Lama is capital two, two L's. So, uh, the mind is also, the movements of the mind, they are also known. Thoughts, feelings, emotions are also known. If they are known, then who is the knower? The seer. Seer now no longer with the eyes. You are the experiencer of the objects in your mind. The feelings, thoughts, emotions in the mind. If they are experienced, who is experiencing? The minimum we can say is, I am experiencing my mind. I am experiencing the contents of my mind. If I am experiencing the contents of my mind, I must be different from the mind. Why? Seer and seen. Here we are getting into deep waters. Up to this point, stage one, stage two, everybody accepts common sense. The stage three is now deep waters. I remember the first time I heard about this, there's one Vidyadhar Maharaj, old Swami, has passed away now. Um, at that time, I did not know all this Drigdrishya Viveka. I had just joined the order as a new brahmachari. And one day we were walking and he um, talks about this. And he says, observe the mind. And then beyond the mind. I said, beyond the mind, if I think about it, it's a darkness, it's a blankness. What is beyond the mind? If I try to think about it, just my mind goes blank. And he said, yes, 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 that, that, that blankness used to stutter. That, that, that blankness, that which is beyond that blankness, Catch that. You can't catch it. You are it. That which is beyond the blankness, that which is actually the experiencer of the movements of the mind. Drishya dhivrittaya sakshi. Dhivrittaya means the vrittis, chitta vrittis. They are also drishya. They are also seen. Seen, of course, in the sense of, of first person experience in the mind. is seen by what is seeing them. That which is seeing them cannot be the mind because it's, it's seeing the mind. Seer and seen are different. And one more thing we can see, say about that one which is seeing the mind is that it must be consciousness because it is aware after all. So that conscious witness of the mind is called Sakshi, witness. Stage three. And that witness... How do we know that? It's very interesting, Swami. I never thought of that. I would like to know that. Sorry, you can't know that. Fourth stage. The stage four is Drishyadhivrittaya Sakshi Drigevanatu Drishyate. The seer is never seen. Which seer? The ultimate seer is never seen. When the eyes are the seer and the object is seen, eyes are the seer. But these eyes themselves become the seen. Who is the seer? Mind. Mind itself becomes the scene. Who is the seer? Sakshi, the witness. But Sakshi never becomes seen. 
It is the ultimate seer. It is the real seer. Remember, on which side are you? Seer or seen? Are you subject or object? Subject. So if the Sakshi is the ultimate seer, Sakshi is the ultimate subject, you are that Sakshi. And you never become an object. You never become an object of knowledge. You cannot know that. Don't be disappointed. It's not that you cannot know it. You are more than, you can, it's more than known. Swami Vivekananda would say in the Gyan Yoga lectures again, he says that this self is never the object of knowledge. It is, it is always the knower, never the known. But you must not go away with the idea. These are his words. You must not go away with the idea that it is unknown. It is more than known. First it is the self which is known and then only everything else is known through that. So, Drigevanatu Drishyate means the self, the witness, the seer never becomes the seen. It means you are never an object. You are ever the subject, the real you. But that real you is not a body. The body is an object. The senses are an object. The mind is an object. The witness of the mind, senses, body is not an object. That's the real you. Is it real? Is it a matter of experience? Take it this way. Let's see. At what point is it not a matter of experience? Um, eyes are the seer. And the book is seen. See, I'm, I'm advertising the book so much. Eyes are the seer. See, see the book. Eyes are the seer. The book is seen. Is this real or theory? Real. Blink the eyes. Close the eyes and open the eyes. Did you feel it? Blinking the eyes and opening. What felt it? The mind. Mind is the knower. The eyes were blinking. The mind knew that. So eyes become an object. Mind is the subject. Is this theory or is it real? Real. Thoughts in the mind. I am happy, I am sad, I understand, I don't understand, I remember, I forget. All of these thoughts. Do you experience them or not? Our own thoughts. We do experience them directly. Then those thoughts are object. I am the subject. I, the subject, the witness of my thoughts. This thing, is it real or is it theory? Right? So real, but the amount of confidence has decreased sharply now. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. That confidence, if you can honestly, clearly, with clarity say that, that's a huge, huge step forward. That's just one step before enlightenment. Think about it. Think about why you are not confident in saying it. If you are confident in saying it, you are admitting to yourself, you are not the mind, you are not the body. The mind and body are objects. That, that consciousness, that witness consciousness is not an object. Why am I calling it witness? Because it witnesses the mind. Through that it witnesses the body. Through the body and mind it witnesses the world. Why am I calling it consciousness? Because it gives, giving you conscious first person subjective experience. Without it everything would be blank. Notice. You are open. Are you there? You are watching the, watching the world. You are watching me. Are you there right now? Suppose you close your eyes. Now you are unable to see me anymore. But are you there? Yes. Suppose you stop thinking. Mind goes blank. But are you not experiencing the blank mind? Yes. That means are you there? Yes. 
whether you are able to see the world hear the world taste it touch it or not you are the witness of seeing not seeing hearing not hearing tasting not tasting uh, doing things or not doing things all of that appears to you you are there all the movements of the senses appear to you you are there if the senses do not work you will not be able to see but you are there if the mind stops thinking then you will not be able to know anything think anything even feel anything but you are aware of the blank mind there is a certain blankness absence of activity going on that you are aware of even if thinking stops awareness goes on on the other hand suppose everything is there open your eyes now world is there this is the danger of telling people to close their eyes at 2:45 after a nice meal yeah tanik samadhi lag gayi little bit of samadhi this is why we like this exercise it's very nice very nice exercise wait let me finish this hold on to the question but suppose the opposite suppose i say you that awareness suppose you are not there world is there body is there eyes are open mind is functioning but suppose you that awareness that one is somehow it's not possible but somehow it's left what will happen what will happen air gone everything is gone for you from your experience blank everything disappears everything disappears universe disappears for you no for me maybe but others that others is also disappears for you because you have no way of knowing thinking even the word others will not come where will the word others come consciousness is not there so this is that consciousness we are talking about yadi deham prithakritya if you can see yourself as separate from the body chiti vishramya tishtasi rest in your nature as pure awareness when will you rest in your nature as pure awareness the interesting thing is yogi says you do this this is almost like the sankhyan but what is the difference the yogi says you have to shut down the movements of the mind you have to close your eyes don't see the world you have to shut down the movements of the mind and remain as awareness what we did now did you see the difference in the approach in advaita vedanta advaita vedanta says open your eyes see the world notice that what you are seeing is different from the eyes regard the eyes notice that the mind is different from the eyes regard the mind notice that the mind is different from you the witnessing consciousness world must be present eyes must be present mind must be present thinking all is going on even the intellect which is thinking these things that's also an object are you not aware of the intellect thinking these things that one which is aware the witness of the intellect that you are the witness of the i consciousness when shankaracharya says i am not the mind i am not the intellect i am not the i that witness of the i that's what you are when shankaracharya sings chidananda rupah shivoham shivoham i am of the nature of shiva i am shiva what is that shiva nature i am consciousness and bliss that's exactly what you are experiencing right now what all of us are experiencing right now shankaracharya has the has the confidence the gumption the khutspa to say that we are little unsure of ourselves can i say that yes you can advaita vedanta emboldens you to say that you must say it
another way. Same thing, another way. Panchakosha Viveka. The five layers of the human personality. Same thing will come to. From Taittiriya Upanishad. It says what we regard ourselves as. The body-mind complex. You can see it as five layers. Five layers, each subtler and inward. The first one is most obvious. When you say, you are pure consciousness. No, I am not. All right, what are you? This. Like baby Victoria. This. Okay, this. Body. It's made of food. It changes as you grow from babyhood to childhood to teenage to youth to middle age to old age. It changes so much. Yet you are the same. And it's an object. You are aware of it. If it's an object, Drik Drishya, remember? You are the subject. It must be different from you. I am aware of this body, so I cannot be this body. That doctor who wrote who had a powerful experience. This is Drik Drishya Viveka, oncologist from Edinburgh. He writes... So much of this x-ray I'm seeing of the patient, the body. In this body, which one am I? Every bit of it, inside, outside, I can see and I know the details I've learned in medical school. Where am I, the conscious being, in any of it? This is Drigdrishya. Body is like that. Another thing. I am awareness and the body is something I'm aware of. Awareness, not awareness. It's not clear? Apply it like this. You are aware. That is consciousness. And what you are aware of, that's the object of consciousness. Notice, simple, apply like this. Look at this bottle. Look at this bottle. You are looking at the bottle. Now, you are aware of the bottle. Where is awareness? On your side or bottle's side? Is the bottle saying, hello, I see you. No. You are saying, hello bottle, I see you. So awareness is on your side, not on the side of the bottle. That on which side the awareness is, that is called chit, consciousness. That which you are aware of is called jada, insentient. Sentient, insentient. They can never be the same thing. That which is insentient and that which is sentient, they can never be the same thing. You are sentient, this is insentient. Why? Because you are aware of it. It is not aware of you. You will say, but Swami, that may be true of the bottle, but the person sitting next to me is aware of me, and I am aware of them. So the person is aware of me, I'm an, then I am an object? No. The person sitting next to you is aware of your body, is aware of your behavior, is aware of your language. But is he aware of you, the awareness? Never. Even if you were a great yogi with telepathic powers, he'll be aware of your thoughts, but not aware of your awareness. Even thoughts are objects. Make sense? The only place you sense awareness is yourself, in your own mind. There's nowhere else that you find awareness. Everything else is jada, an object to your awareness. Because of these three reasons. Which were the three reasons again? Changing, unchanging. I am the unchanging experiencer of a changing body. Changing, unchanging. I cannot be the body. Drigdrishya, seer and seen. I cannot be the body. I am the seer of the body. Awareness and not awareness. Sentient, insentient. <coughs> I am sentient. The body is insentient. I cannot be the body. So I say, yeah, yeah. I know I am not the body. 
but what I meant was, what are we doing? Remember, Panchakosha Vivek, the five, five layers of the human personality. What I meant was, I am in the body. Ah, this is what I meant. Okay, you are in the body. What is in the body? It's somewhere in there, subtle. In the body does not mean physically in the body. Because if you physically if you investigate the body, you will get what? More body. Doctor will cut and see where is the Atma? No. They will get only the body. Subtler than the body, inward to the body is what? You discover life forces. Physiological processes. What is called life. Prana. Circulation of blood. Digestion of food. Breathing. All the things which make the body a living body. That living body, that living thing is called prana. So am I prana? Am I life? That sounds, seems to be a more promising candidate. Subtler, inward to the physical body. Anyuantaratma pranamaya. The self is prana, life. But the same objections arise. Is, is the prana changing? Yes. Sometimes healthy, sometimes unhealthy, sometimes hungry, sometimes satiated. Sometimes energetic, sometimes tired. The tides of prana are ever moving in and out of the body. Health, energy, vitality, changing all the time. Changing and unchanging. I the one, how do I know I am unchanging? Because I was the one who felt sick. Now I am the one who feels quite alright. I am the same one. The sick one was not different. And I am not the healthy one who is different. Once, I, once Swami was there... The oldest Swami of our order. At that time, he was nearly a hundred. He, he got a cold like that. And I was in the hospital at that time. So he came and he... So he's of the old school. So he, he came and admitted himself. That means he walked into the hospital and lay down on the bed. <laughs> then the doctors came running. Swami, you cannot do this. It has to have to be admitted. There's paperwork to be done. He said, I feel sick. So I, I'm just... Here I am. Treat me. He was the oldest patient, I was the youngest patient. Then one day he felt alright. He was about to walk out, there was a big commotion. Doctors, nurses, they're, they're all running to catch hold of him. He said, I'm alright, I'm going now. <laughs> no! <laughs> you have to wait. <laughs> and they had to have emergency dis discharge for him because it's very difficult to hold on to him. <laughs> you cannot say, the sick one is somebody different, I'm the healthy one, no, I I'm leaving now. No, you are the one who felt sick. You are the one who felt healthy. Then that means you have, un, you have not changed. But the prana has changed. Changing, unchanging. You cannot be the same thing. I cannot be prana. Drik drishya. Are you aware of the prana? Whole mindfulness industry depends on your answer. <laughs> Billion dollar industry. Why? Be aware of the breathing in. Be aware of the breathing out. If you are not aware of breathing in, breathing out finished. Be aware of the breathing in, be aware of the breathing out. Mindfulness meditation depends on that. But Vedanta has a different take on it. Vedanta says, if you are aware of the breath, then you are not the breath. The breath is drishya. You are the drashta. You are the awareness of the breath. Breathing in, you are the awareness, which is aware of the breathing in. Breathing out, you are the awareness, which is aware of the breathing out. That awareness is unchanged. And you are the Witness the awareness must be different from that which is aware of. Drashta drishya. You are not the prana. Sentient, insentient. Remember the definition? You, the consciousness, are the sentient. And whatever is an object to you is the insentient. Who is aware? 
Are you aware of the inbreath or is the inbreath aware of you? Hmm? You are aware of the inbreath and the outbreath. Therefore, you are awareness, awareness on your side, and uh, inbreath and outbreath are objects. Uh, chit jada, sentient in sentient. Therefore, you cannot be the breath. Because of these reasons, prana is also not you. You are not the prana. Yes, but I am the mind. Yes, now I've got it. I am not the breath, I am not the body, but I am the mind. Apply the same um, uh, insights. These are called prakriya methods. Apply the same three, changing, unchanging. Does the mind change? You're laughing, is it? <laughs> oh boy, does it change. <laughs> moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, year to year of life. So many things, thoughts keep coming and going. Likes and dislikes change, memories fade away. Understanding comes, confusion becomes clarity, clarity becomes confusion again. Yeah? From childhood ignorance to college, Harvard University, degree, then in a lot of knowledge, and then Parkinson, forgotten. In, uh, knowledge changing. Mind changes continuously. Knowledge changes. Uh, uh, your memories fade away. Desires change. Personality changes. You are aware of all of those things. So, changing, unchanging. You cannot be the mind. Is the mind an object? Are you the seer of the mind? We just did that. Yes, I am the drashta. Mind is drishya. Drashta and drishya must be separate. Seer and seen. You are the seer of the mind. The mind is seen. You are not the mind. And most stunning of all, consciousness is where? On your side or on the side of the mind? Uh, because we you know, we have, uh, immediately we think the mind is conscious. If anything is conscious in the world, Swami, this is too much. Mind is conscious. If you argue brain is not conscious, I will give you that. But if you now are saying mind is not, uh, not conscious, this is too much, Swami. But take a simple example. The, always exam the example I always take is, take a simple example. Think a simple thought, 2 plus 2 is 4. Think it right now. You are aware of the 2 plus 2, 4. On which side is awareness? On your side or the 2 plus 2, 4? You are aware of 2 plus 2, 4. 2 plus 2, 4 is not aware of you. It's not saying you have not thought me for a long time. <laughs> it's not saying that. You are aware of it. It's just like mental talk. 2 plus 2, 4 is just like mental talk. All thoughts are like that. They're like mental talk. They are not aware of anything. They are not aware of themselves. They are not aware of you. But you are aware of them. And you are aware of yourself. So... Sentient, insentient, you are not the thought also. Similarly, in words, Anyuantaratma, Vigyanamaya, see the Upanishad is taking us, Vedanta is taking us step by step, in words, subtler and subtler and subtler. This very intellect which you are using for understanding all these things, for which you use for science, for to do your taxes, to run a computer or a car, or, and do Vedanta, all of this is being done by buddhi, intellect. We saw in Sankhya the first manifestation from Prakriti. That intellect. Am I the intellect? That seems to be that seems to be right. I am that power of understanding. But apply the same logic, changing or unchanging? Changing. Intellect changing. Are you aware of the workings of the intellect? Yes, introspect, you will immediately be aware. And is the consciousness on the side of the intellect or on your side? On your side. Even intellect is lit up. The insights of the intellect are lit up by awareness. You are consciousness. Intellect is something that you are conscious of. 
I am not the intellect either. Push beyond that, you will hit a blankness. That blankness, am I the blankness? Again note, are you aware of the blankness? Yes. Then the blankness is an object. You are that which is aware of the blankness. If you push beyond the blankness, same thing, changing, unchanging, drashta um, drishya, uh, and sentient, insentient. If you apply those three rules, you will see, I cannot be that blankness. That's that anandamaya kosha, the last sheath of the human personality. Beyond that is the real you. And we wait at that point. Yes, now he's going to tell us the real Atman. I'm going to be enlightened now. And Upanishad keeps quiet, strategically at that point. Layers, physical body, I'm not that. Changing, unchanging, object and subject. Uh, sentient, insentient, good, good. Then the prana, I'm not that. Changing, unchanging, subject and object. Uh, sentient, insentient, all right. The mind, same three rules. I cannot be the mind. Intellect, I cannot be the intellect. The blankness beyond the intellect. Remember, all of these things are available for your inspection right now. You look inside yourself, you'll find all of them. Then after that blankness, now I'm waiting. He will surely tell me. Uh, Upanishad will surely tell me. Now reveal to me my real nature as consciousness. And I will be enlightened. And be done with the Vedanta thing. And get back to my life. <laughs> I have more important things to do. And Upanishad keeps quiet. At this point the student gets a doubt. The student asks the teacher, so there is no self? Asad Brahmaiti Veda Chet. Here is the crucial point, you know, where Buddhism, Advaita Vedanta, that crucial discussion takes place. Brahman does not exist then. Atman is the self is not there. And the answer is, Asanneva Sabhavati. That means you would not exist. If someone asks at this point that, is Brahman not there? Then you yourself would not exist. But you do exist. Now you see what, where have you have been forced. Whatever you thought you were, you are now convinced I am not those things. Clearly I am none of them. So I do not exist. But you do exist. All the things that you thought you were, those things are clearly you are not. And if you think you are nothing, that also you are not. You are not a thing, you are not nothing. What are you? I call it a no-thing, yeah. not nothing, not a thing. What is a thing? Body is a thing. The prana is a thing, a subtle thing. Mind is a thing. Intellect is a thing. Even the blankness beyond the intellect is a thing because it is, pre it is presented as an object. And what is nothing? And if I, am not, I don't exist at all, then that's nothing. But I do exist, no doubt about it. So I am not nothing, I am not a thing. This is the meaning of neti neti. The first neti, neti means not this. The first neti is, it covers every objective thing that you can present. Am I this? Am I this? Am I this? No. Neti. Then, am I nothing? Neti. Not even that. How does it work? It is here you must in instinctively grasp it. How do you instinctively grasp it? Like this. That story of the tenth man. Uh, old story. Ten friends crossed a river. 
and then they thought have we all crossed or did somebody uh, drown and then they said let's count one of them started counting 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 oh my god 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 oh the 10th man has drowned and the others said you are not get doing it right let me try they all tried they found only nine people obviously they were not counting themselves and they started crying then somebody passed by and asked why are you crying my friends oh what a tragedy sir we were crossing the river and our friend the 10th person died how do you know the 10th person died because we counted there are only nine there were 10 of us to start with now there are only nine that man must have counted and seen all 10 so he says don't cry the 10th person is there guru comes and says book vedanta book says you are brahman we don't know yet we don't see it yet you are there right now right here you are it all problems solved it's there but you don't see it so that is the stage of what is called paroksha gyana indirect knowledge they say all right i believe you we believe you but where can you show us where is the 10th person then the wise man says do count again we counted no humor me count again so they start counting 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 and the wise man takes his hand and turns it around thou art the 10th dashamastvamasi 10 and this man goes oh i see 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 oh Oh how wonderful and the others say let me try let me try and they all try it and they find 10th man has been found and they are so happy exactly like that try it here is the body i am not the body breathe in and breathe out that's the breath i am not the breath not as a mantra you must see why am i not the breath clearly see changing and changing it is changing i am unchanging it is an object i am the subject seen and uns- i am the seer second one and the third one is it's not sentient i am sentient i am aware of it breathing in breathing out do it actually experientially try it it's an object i am not clearly not the breath then this thought which is going on in the mind i am clearly not the thought same things it changes clear yes it's an object yes i am aware of it it's not aware of me yes therefore i am not it the thoughts go deeper the understanding vigyanamaya changing and changing clearly my intellect is changing my uh, intellect is uh, understanding is an object and sentience awareness is on my side not on the side of the understanding go beyond it you will hit a blankness nothing just blank but you are aware of the blankness it's an object who is the one what is the one aware of these five experientially try to find always when you are disturbed go back to the most physical thing the body see touch feel this one i am not just like the doctor had the experience by seeing the x-ray clearly none, nowhere in this i am there and i am not and you must be able to defend so they were saying that in the orientation whatever you must be ready to defend every word you put down so you must be ready to defend why am i not the body give three reasons three marks <laughs> yes uh, could you say more about this 
Yes. How do you differentiate? It's a very elegant discrimination. Discrimination, I, let's use the word discernment. So very elegant discern, discernment. Or if you are aware of it, then awareness is on your side and that which you are aware is not aware. Awareness is not on its, on its side. Start with an object and a book. Book. Clearly you are aware of the book. Oh, awareness is on your side, not on this side. Book is not aware of you. You might at this point say, yeah, that's true of the book. But if I look at you, Swami, I'm aware of you, but you are also aware of me. But again, the answer is, I'm aware of your body. I'm aware of your gestures. I'm aware of your speech. If I were a telepath, I would be aware of your thoughts. But I would never be aware of awareness itself. So, awareness never becomes an object. Awareness is ever the subject. And whatever you are aware of is insentient. The awareness itself is sentience. It's a very elegant knife. You would apply it in your experience, you will see clearly it will divide into two parts. The pure subject and everything else. Yes. So maybe the, the part where you talk about witnessing your own thoughts hmm. and then this discerning that your thoughts are objects hmm. and the one who the aware, being aware of your thoughts is the, the awareness of your subject. In, sometimes witnessing your own thoughts itself feels like a function hmm. of other portions of the mind. Correct. Do you see the question? Important question. Is it not the mind itself witnessing the mind? True. The mind can witness the mind. It's called introspection. Look inside. But the interesting thing is, the interesting thing is, when the mind is not witnessing the mind, you're not actually trying to see what's in your mind. At that time, don't you feel flashes of happiness, misery, understanding, memory? All the time the mind is working. And the inputs or the outputs of the mind are presented to you without any effort without trying to see what's in your mind. That means it is being presented to consciousness. It's a very delicate thing which I'm saying. Consciously, deliberately looking at my mind, that's an activity. That's also a mental activity. But when you don't do that, even then the activities of the mind are being con continuously presented to you. You don't have to look always. You see something delightful. So are you delighted? Let me introspect. Am I delighted or not? Yes, there is delight. Yes, I am delighted. <laughs> no, we immediately have a uh, smiley face. Oh, it's so delightful. That delightfulness was experienced directly without mind thinking about it. What was experiencing effortlessly the delight or the lack thereof? You will notice what I am pointing towards is never an object. You will never be able to catch it. Why? Because it is the one looking. Whatever you can catch is a function of the mind.
to try to turn the light backwards, but it cannot be known. So it cannot be known. It's a different form of knowing. Yes. Two things happen. First of all, by this process, the error of identifying ourselves with some function of the buddhi or the mind or the prana or the body, that error is corrected. Clearly, I am not those. And the real self is not known by the buddhi, which is doing all this. It just reveals itself, but not as an object of the buddhi. It is ever the subject, never the object. Why is there lack of confidence in this? Because, same reason. Why is there lack of confidence when the wise man comes and says, tenth man is there. If you said, are the nine men there? All of them would have said, yes, yes, I counted. Tenth man is there. They all would say, if you say so, sir. I don't see. <laughs> Our condition is like that. Clearly tenth man is there. Clearly Atma is there. And you are that. But it's not an object. Why is there lack of confidence? Because all our knowing till now is objective. We are habitually object seekers. Tell me, why couldn't they find the tenth man? Though the tenth one was obviously present. They were looking outside. Why were they looking outside? Why? Correct. Because up to the ninth man, whatever they found, they found out there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So by logic, by previous experience, the tenth man should be there. But not there. So the Atman is a unique thing. Because it's not a thing. Our problem is we swing between two things. Either it must be an objective reality or it's not there at all. But there is a third thing, third option between objective existence, non-existence and the third one is the subject. Our modern materialistic worldview, you know what it does? It says the subject is nothing else, it's a product of the object. Body is the object, brain is the object and it produces the subject by its biochemical reactions. Advaita does the opposite. We are coming to the, that third part of it now. Uh, the, the second step, step two steps. First step was this one, witness consciousness. Now let us go to the second step. Uh, yes, you are talking about the first, the first step? Yes. Can you tell us about changing and unchanging? Why would that be an object versus subject? subject? Hmm. No, not so, object versus subject. subject. If, uh, yeah, no, whatever it is, I am I, if I experience myself as unchanging and I experience the body as changing, then how can I say the two are same? If the body is continuously changing, and I feel, I was that little, in that little baby's body, I was in, the, in that uh, teenager's body, I am the middle-aged person's body. The bodies are, have changed so much. And I feel I was the one there, in all of them, the same uh, subject in all of these things then how can I be the, the changing, I the unchanging, how can I be the changing? It's logically impossible for unchanging and changing to be the same thing. Example? Yeah. Yeah, because we don't have to apply it there, because we nev I never think I'm the book. Yeah. So the book changes, okay, let it change, it's nothing to me. 
but i think i am the body and then there what it does is this thinking it exposes a logical flaw in our thinking i think of myself as this unchanging being and i conveniently ignore the fact that the body is a torrent of change it's a conglomeration a torrent of change all the time and yet i i um, ignore that i think i am this but if you ask which this that little uh, baby the child the teenager the youth the middle aged person the senior person which this they are not the same thing at all it's one process no doubt but un- uh, like a stream continuously heraclitus said you cannot bathe in the same river twice the body is like that change ever changing river it's a flow which one are you that's what the logic is now the next thing is so now we have clearly made a distinction consciousness not consciousness what is uh, changing unchanging subject object i am the witness consciousness everything else mind body external universe all of them are object physical object universe physical object body subtle object prana subtle object mind subtle object intellect causal object anandamay kosha the, the resolved state of the mind deep sleep but they are all objects now this is not non duality this is duality with a vengeance this is sankhya do you see purusha and prakriti viveka has been done if you could confidently do that you would have attained enlightenment in the sankhyan sense notice how is this useful what good does it do there's a lot of good the second arrow why does it come because i think i have been hit by the first arrow then that pain comes reaction comes anger comes misery comes disappointment comes frustration comes but all of that is body mind yes She's not happy with that. My body is being hit. I'm not the body, but it's mine. So how do I remove the mine? I and mine. See, that being hit and the sensation which it produces, is that not also an object? mine is not a, is is also a problem but but look at it this way why do i uh, why do i have problems with it because if i say yes it's an object but when you cut it it burns it hurts when you cut that thing it does not hurt me it hurts here it hurts me but if you go a little deeper where is the hurt is the hurt also not an experience that hurt is a sensation isn't it a, an unpleasant sensation but the sensation is pre- as an object presented to the awareness it's also not me it's a very unpleasant sensation if i if you can you can actually don't try too harshly but if you try actually a little bit if you pinch and see notice as this is an object the sensation in your hand as pinching that's also clearly an object to me the consciousness now can you treat this as a physical object and that sensation of pain that pinching as another subtle object then you will see a distance a kind of gap opens up between you 
and the so-called pain. It will no longer be my pain. It's a pain. It's a sensation. A pleasurable sensation, unpleasant sensation, not me, not mine. A sensation. Why would I think it's mine? If I see this thing here, do I think it's mine? No. If I see this shirt here, do I think it's mine? No. In what sense is it mine? This body, is it mine? Yes, it's, it's mine. Why? Why? You see? Huh? You're inside it? Or is it inside you? Why do you think it's mine? What Sadhu in Uttarakhand put it nicely. Did you make it? No. Do you own the... Huh? Are you stuck with it? Very interesting. Are you stuck with it? No. No, no. Every night when you go to sleep, you continue to exist in your dream world. The body is nowhere present in your awareness. Tell me. Are you stuck with the body? When you are awake means, when you are connected, awake and being stuck with the body is the same definition. In Mandukya Upanishad, what is the definition of being awake? Being consciousness connected with the sense organs and the physical universe. That means, with the body. That is the very definition of being awake. There is no problem. If I am stuck with the shirt, that's a problem. But at sometimes I wear the shirt, no problem for me. It is not me. Sometimes you have the body, it's good. When, do I, when am I not stuck to the body? What about your dreams? You wake up and you say, all, all that was false. Fine. But did you not continue to have conscious experiences? Doing things, hearing things, enjoying, suffering. Another body, another place, things happening, all imagined in the mind, no doubt. But without any feeling of being this sleeping body. That means you can continue as a conscious entity without any reference to the body. You are not stuck with the body. Body is also not stuck to you. It is called the very name of the body, Shariram, Shiryate, which is, which is degenerating, which is falling apart continuously. Yeah. That's the meaning of the body, Shariram. Shiryate means which, which deteriorates or degenerates or falls apart. Uh, this exact same experience we had in Uttar, uh, I'll come to you. In, uh, in Calcutta University, Atma Priyanji told you about. Once we went, he was giving a talk on Mandukya Upanishad. We see that in the deep sleep, there is no body. One physiology professor indignantly stood up in Calcutta University. He said, what do you mean there is no body? I can see the fellow lying there and snoring. <laughs> How is there no body? You are seeing a third person's perspective outside the sleeping body. But I'm talking about the conscious being you, who is experiencing deep sleep. Where is the body in deep sleep? For you. From third person perspective, you will immediately say, deep sleep is a neurological phenomenon. But what is, what is behind the words neurological phenomenon? Until you can prove beyond doubt that our consciousness, this awareness, 
is a product of the brain and nervous system and nothing beyond that. That it is associated with the brain and nervous system, nobody denies. Nobody denies. How can you deny it? You take a cup of coffee, you feel more alert. If somebody has mental disturbance, you take a pill, you become calm again. That means both ways. Mental, mental disturbance, unhappiness, it damages the health of the body. Take chemical substances in the body, it affects your mind. So definitely there is a connection. But is your consciousness produced by the brain? Is consciousness a neurological phenomenon? This is the crux of the problem. <laughs> That's what David Chalmers points out. See, look at it this way. In fact, Advaita Vedanta, I'll complete it in two, two philosophers, modern philosophers. David Chalmers says, there is no way in which you can show that the physical body, living brain and nervous system produces consciousness. Associated with consciousness? No doubt. Produces consciousness. How? Where? No, there is not. Uh -huh. So they are saying, there is a huge, this is, this is called the, please Google hard problem of consciousness. This is called the hard problem of consciousness. How can a physical entity like the brain, which is no doubt a physical entity, the last thing that scientists can find, the finest thing, the final thing that scientists can find, are the little firings in the neurons in the brain. That's, that's it. We've never been able to catch one single thought one single emotion. If you just think 2 plus 2, 4, that also a scientist cannot catch right now. Only a burst of electricity. How? There are two sides to it. So, that, that is called the hard problem of consciousness. Which leads us to the idea that consciousness may be an independent entity. Which uses the brain and nervous system, no doubt. Somehow it is connected. It works through that. But it is not produced by the brain. So it's like, if I look at you, all of you, you came through the door, so I said, oh, the door is very powerful, it produced 75 people. All people are being produced by the door. They emerge from the door and they disappear back into the door. The door is guard. It produces everything. And no, it's just the doorway. So brain and nervous system, are they the doorway for consciousness or are they the producers of consciousness? If you say they are producers of consciousness, that is materialism. That's the end of all um, Vedanta, Buddhism, religion. Finished. You don't need anything else after that anymore. Because after all, what, what, what's the most that can happen? This living body will live for a few more years. It will die. Finished. Nothing more is left after that. Why bother? And like, uh, what's his name? Myth of Sisyphus, Albert Camus. First sentence. The only serious question in philosophy is why should I not commit suicide just now? Why not? Vedanta's answer is you cannot. You cannot commit suicide. <laughs> you can kill the body. Subtle body will continue. Consciousness, of course, will continue. Okay. That is one, is a good way of uh, completing the whole presentation. One is, David Chalmers, if you take, hard problem of consciousness means you are the consciousness and not the body, not the mind. Somehow, independent consciousness utilizes body and mind. That's where Sankhya and Yoga stop. One more question needs to be asked. Then are they two separate realities? Consciousness and this universe? And in this universe what is included? Body is included. Mind is included also. Even mind is included in the universe. All of this and consciousness separate.
Is this the final thing? Advaita asks a question there. What is the relationship between the two? Are they two separate things interacting? How would you claim two things are separate? The logic is this. It's called the Anvaya Vetireka in Sanskrit. Anvaya Vetireka. It means two things you can claim are separate if you can experience them separately. That means these two books, again I'm showing. <laughs> these two books are separate. These two books are separate. How do I know? Because I can show them to you separately. Here is one without the other. Red one without the green, uh, the green one. Here is the green one without the red one. Separately you can see. If they can exist separately, they are two independent entities. Mostly they are, you can see them on the shelf together. <laughs> but all the old story of the man, old man, and you want to see those beautiful teeth. Are they really his teeth or are they dentures? Now every time you see this nice smile is giving, the teeth are in his mouth. But unless you can see them separately, how will you know? Are they his original teeth or are they separate? Only when you suddenly pay him an, a visit to his apartment and he opens the door with a toothless smile and the dentures are sitting there grinning at you uncannily from a little box, <laughs> then you realize they are two separate things. You have to experience them separately. All right. Here is a subtle point, but a stunning point. Have you ever experienced a universe apart from awareness? You cannot. You never have. Even more stunning. In principle, logically, it is impossible. For all experience requires consciousness. It's a trick question. If I say, can you experience the universe apart from consciousness? In the question itself, consciousness is built in. Because experience requires consciousness. How can there be an experience without consciousness? If you cannot experience the universe apart from consciousness, some consciousness, somebody's consciousness, in some way, how are you justified in saying that there is a universe apart from consciousness? You divided into two. Changing, unchanging, subject, object, um, sentient, insentient. But the changing object, insentient, anitya, um, drishya, jara, is it separate from the nitya, drashta, chetana? Is it separate? There is no proof of it being separate because it cannot be experienced apart from consciousness. By, in principle, because any experience requires consciousness. It cannot be experienced. But consciousness can exist apart from everything. That experiment which we just did, open your eyes and see the world, close your eyes, you see the eyes are closed, but you are still existing. If you are not aware of the body, you are still existing. If the mind stops thinking, but you are still existing. But if you somehow don't exist, then the rest of everything vanishes into darkness for you. So, there is no way that the objective universe can be there, no logical way of speaking about the present, the possibility of an objective universe without you, the subjective consciousness. Therefore, they are not two different things. They must be in some sense be one. This objective universe is not apart from you, the subjective consciousness. It is an appearance in you. The whole universe is an appearance in you you are the subjective awareness that is called Atma, Brahman, Chaitanyam, Consciousness, whatever you call it. 
and the universe is called Jagat. It is not Prakriti and Purusha. That's where Advaita strikes its hammer blow. Not Prakriti and Purusha. Purusha consciousness is the reality. Prakriti is the appearance therein. Sister Nivedita once asked uh, Swami Vivekananda, is Kali the dream of Shiva? Is Kali the dream of Shiva? And Vivekananda laughed and he said, well, 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 have it your way then. <laughs> yeah, he said, yes, that's a good way of thinking about it. Have it your way. The universe is the dream of consciousness. If we come back to Vishnu on his thousand-headed serpent lying on this physical universe is the dream of consciousness. The second philosopher I wanted to mention is Galen Strawson. Those who have studied Western philosophy, you have all heard of Peter Strawson. He was a leading Oxford philosopher in the 1960s, 70s. It's his son. I didn't know that. Professor Rendam Chakravarti told me. He's the young, he's, in philosophy circles, he's called the younger Strawson. But he is in University UT, Texas. He has written an article called The Hard Problem of Matter. Not hard problem of consciousness. And they are sort of tongue-in-cheek. You Google it, hard problem of matter. These two things you Google, you'll get Advaita Vedanta. Hard problem of consciousness, step one. Hard problem of matter, step two. Two steps to not two. What is that hard problem of matter? I'll say this and end. I didn't think I would come in this route, but any, any route, it gets you to non-duality, fine. He says, where is the hard problem of consciousness? Consciousnesses are directly presented to us all the time. We are aware. All the time, whatever in whatever context, first thing is we are aware. There's no other context except, except our awareness. But the real mystery is matter. The more we are investigating matter through physics, the more matter is disappearing before us. Uh, from molecules to atoms to subatomic particles to the nucleus to subnuclear particles to quarks to now to superstrings. Where is matter? What is matter? That becomes a mystery. He says, consciousness is a mystery because you have made it a mystery. He, uh, Galen Strawson writes, you have assumed everything, matter is fundamental, brain is fundamental, brain must be producing consciousness. You can't explain how brain is producing consciousness, hence hard problem of consciousness. But it's hard problem only because you have assumed brain is producing consciousness. And you can't explain how. But suppose brain is not producing consciousness. Suppose brain and body and universe are all appearances in consciousness. Only consciousness exists. Suppose, he says. Which one is more logical? The amazing thing is, this second view is more logical. It leaves science untouched. Because all your science works in the realm of the object, in the nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Everything is untouched there. But all of it appears to one fundamental reality called awareness. That is what Advaita is saying. All of this awareness is not, all of this appearance is not different from awareness. Advaitam. Two hands there. You had raised now. Mm. 
this is see the no, moment no you thing. raise the objection first sentence i know the whole <laughs> question right. and also so the my, answer to it my question is maybe consciousness is also an apparent phenomenon it's right. not a true phenomenon yes. just like life force yes listen carefully the question is good but the answer can take you very deep first is what is the question massimo he is the head of philosophy in uh, cuny he is a biologist and a philosopher and he is fully convinced consciousness is a product a byproduct of physiological uh, activities of the living tissue especially brain and he said this this objection i'm saying it's apparent phenomenon apparent phenomenon right. fine life there's no such thing as life right okay. so he is saying that and he gave this example of life elan vital and uh, there was you know the old concept of prana there's a life force he said life itself was regarded as a mystery which science could not explain 100 years back but now we know the way we have studied modern biology down to molecular level we know we know the processes it's not one thing it's many processes together and it's not necessary to speak of life as a separate thing we know this group of processes together is what you are generally referring to as life we have explained it now we may not be able to replicate it we may not understand it down to the last detail but in principle the thing is understood now similarly he said this consciousness problem is also similar right now it is a bunch of processes which we don't understand too well and we are calling it a mysterious phenomenon called consciousness but soon we will be able to explain it in terms of basic processes in the brain and nervous system just like we were able to explain life so called life as a set of basic physiological processes there is no more thing called life than these physiological processes to going together there is no more thing called consciousness than certain neurological activities going on in the brain how it is so it's not clear yet he said give us 40 to 50 years it's called promissory materialism i promise you i will give an uh, explanation okay what is advaita's reaction to this i'll give you the reaction it's a very simple and elegant reaction the reaction is this you are making a category mistake notice advaita vedanta would have never ever said life is a mysterious thing which science can never understand why not why not because according to advaita vedanta do you see what we did pranamaya kosha i am not the prana also why it's an object life is also an object and you have explained what you have done when you have explained life in terms of deep biological processes you have explained an objective phenomenon in terms of component objective processes that's entirely possible but when you come to consciousness it's not an object you if you are saying that i will be able to explain consciousness which is the pure subject in terms of objective brain processes you are making a leap now you must first understand what is meant by consciousness life is in, life is prana is entirely objective and if you explain prana in terms of other physical processes well and good um vedanta would be happy with it in principle there is no objection to it why vedanta would go further and say even mind is an object you should be able to explain mental phenomenon in terms of uh, physical processes 
But consciousness is not mind, not um, prana, not even brain or body. It is the subject, it is the tenth man. So it cannot be broken down into further objective uh, phenomena. In principle. That's why we are standing strong here. If you take the Vedantic perspective, you will see that uh, what you are, the, that witness consciousness, you can't explain it in terms of the objects to, of, to that witness. You are the witness and these are objects. These, none of these objects can explain you the witness. Yeah. Man, story, Swami, seems illogical to me uh, for this reason. Uh, at the end, when they went to count the ten men, they all counted nine. Hmm. Uh, and someone, a teacher, came along and said, no, there's a tenth one. So how did they come up with ten men to start off with, and what made them assume that there were ten men in the beginning when they only counted nine? So what makes us forget that we're the tenth man? Hmm. Yeah. What makes us forget? We have never re uh, you're there, I know. Uh, we have, you're saying, asking, how did it all begin? <laughs> asking, how did it all begin? The answer in Advaita Vedanta, you see, I'll give you three answers. First is a practical answer um, given by the Buddha. Second one is the typical answer given by Vedanta to all these questions. Third one is the real answer. First one is a practical answer. Practical answer given by the Buddha is when a man is hit by arrow, an arrow. He loves people getting hit by arrows. It is no use questioning of what wood the arrow is made, what is the cast of the man who shot the arrow and so on. He has that famous story is there. That it's to a person who asks these questions, what would you say, oh Ananda, what would you say to such a person? You say, oh the person is foolish, he will die before he gets treatment. So the, the thing is to get treatment and get free of suffering. These questions benefit nobody because there is no solution to these questions. There is suffering. So then the monk asked the Buddha, then what do you teach? Because all other teachers are giving us answers to these things. The Buddha said, I teach that there is suffering and there is a cause of suffering and there is a remedy for suffering, the freedom from suffering and there is a way out of suffering. So practical question. The practical point is, this, uh, there is, it's insoluble, it will help, it has no practical benefit, this question and the answer to it. Second, if one persists, no, I want an answer. Let it be a theoretical answer, but I want an answer. Here is an answer. There is no beginning. Ignorance has no beginning. Anadi avidya, they say. Beginningless ignorance. Yeah. Beginningless, how, aren't you just avoiding the question? I'm asking, how, do we, how did it start? When did it start? What was the first time when it started? We're saying there is no first time. There is no beginning. It's beginningless. And you say, aren't you avoiding the question? No. With Professor Jain Mahanti, he gave the nice answer to this. First time I it's a simple answer, but ignorance is always beginningless. He asked us in class, do you know German? And he said, no. So since when, when do you not know German? <laughs> I said, since my birth. Oh, so before that you knew German? No. <laughs> Ignorance of anything is beginningless. But it comes to an end. 
when you start knowing something, when you start attending your first German class, the ignorance begins to shift. So it is beginningless. It's, look at it this way. Um, if you are asking questions about Harry Potter, so when did it start? We find only the story about Harry Potter's mom and dad. But what, who were Harry Potter's grandfather and grandfather and their grandparents? And how did all this magic business start? The answer is, uh, it's in the story. Yeah. Apart from that, nothing. So that brings us to the third and the real answer. How did it start, if you're asking? The answer is, it did not start. You're asking, when did the rope become the snake? The answer is, the rope never became the snake. It only appears like that. Now if you ask, why does it appear like that? Well, this question has been asked many times, so don't ask. <laughs> yes. When we intuit that it was a snake, or that where there was a tenth man, and we started to question, and that's what causes the journey? No, what causes the journey is uh, suffering. If we were all perfectly contented, we would not ask this question. We are unhappy, we suffer, and we look for fulfillment. And then along comes spirituality and says, deep, lasting fulfillment is possible, but not in the way you are seeking in this world. It's possible when you transcend this. So then the whole spiritual solution, question of the spiritual solution comes up. What is your question? You have been raising your hand e eagerly many times. Um, earlier you had said, because when giving the example of eyes and the mind, you said mind was a subject. So I know it is an object now, but I just want to know what happens when somebody dies, according to Advaita Vedanta, where does the mind go? I mean, I know the soul goes, Atma and Paramatma, I mean, whatever we say. But I want to know what happens to the mind at that time. Hmm. Remember, death, Advaita Vedanta, in common with Nagarjuna's Madhyamaka philosophy, uh, some schools of uh, Buddhism, they uphold what is called two levels of truth, two tiers of truth, Paramarthic Absolute and Vavaharika Transactional. Absolute, what's the absolute truth? You are Brahman. There is no death there, there is no birth there, there is no body to be born or die. It's one reality. It's like the difference between, if you're watching a Harry Potter movie, the movie and the screen. In the screen, there is no Harry Potter, no villain, no movie, nothing. But that's the reality. But in the movie, the whole plot is there. Now, you have to understand, your question, which level does it refer to? Absolute level or relative level? Paramarthic or Vyavaharik? Relative. relative level. Your relative level, when you're saying death, what happens? What is the Advaita view of death? If you ask, what is the absolute view of death from Advaita perspective? No death. But the transactional level, Advaita says, take your pick. Uh, actually does not. What Advaita does is, it takes the entire uh, Sankhyan point of view. It, it takes entire Sankhyan cosmology. So it's happy. But remember, Advaita never takes it seriously. Because it's not real anyway. So, what does it say? Transactionally, what is acceptable to Advaita? What happens at death? Physical body dies. Subtle body survives death. Subtle body includes what? Mind also. 
Atma remains constant, Atma or Brahman. This subtle body is the one with the reflection of the Atma consciousness reflected in it which transmigrates. Punar Janma. According to the past karma of the jiva, it goes on to other worlds, then takes birth in other bodies, and this circle go, cycle goes on. It's like asking, what happened to Harry Potter in chapter next chapter? Remember always, this chapter, next chapter, they're all fiction. But yes, within the fiction, something will happen in the next chapter. So this is the Advaita point of view, that yes, there are, this life will happen, your past karma is there, this body will die, then the um, subtle body will transmigrate to the next body. No, tell me the real truth. Is this what you really believe? And Gaurapada says, you want to hear what I really believe? Yes. Nani rodho na chutpatti Nabaddho na cha muktaha Na sadhaka na cha mumukshuhu Ittyesha paramarthata There is no origination of the universe, no cessation of the universe. There is no one in bondage, nor anybody seeking liberation. There is nobody practicing spiritual disciplines, nor anybody liberated. What do you mean? This is the final truth. Ittyesha paramarthata. Which means Brahman alone exists, but it will, he will not say that. Two levels. Two levels of truth. And it's not as strange as that. We are always, we are continuously using two levels of truth. What do you do when you watch a movie? What do you do when you refer to a dream? What do you do when you read a novel? Two levels of truth. You are always inhabiting two levels of truth. What Advaita says is beyond this level of truth which you consider to be truth, there is another deeper level of truth, which is Brahman, yes. Which one? Hmm. Um, no, I did not give the third method. Actually, third method I was going to give, there's no time. The third method for the first step is avasthatraya. Drigdrishya viveka, panchakosha viveka, avasthatraya. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. All of them will reveal that you are the pure consciousness. It's one way of doing it. Actually, I must be technically correct here because if anybody investigates in depth, you will find, oh, Swami didn't say this. Actually, when you investigate something like whether it's Drigdrishya Viveka or Panchakosha Viveka or the method of the waking, dreaming, deep sleep, they will all lead you to non-duality ultimately. None of them abandon you in the first step. It is Non-duality is built into them. But how do, how do you go from the first step to non-duality? In each of these steps, you ask that question. Now I have divided the two. Subject, object. Changing, unchanging. Consciousness and its objects. Now what is the relationship between me, the subject, and the object. Once you ask this relationship, Sankhya will say, they are no relationship, they are two separate things. Keep them separate, you are happy. Advaita will say, that is illogical. You have never seen an object apart from the subject. So the object is somehow irrevocably tied to the subject. It is one with the subject. But the subject is independent of the object. Then you have Advaita, step two, oneness. Uh-huh. We'll do f- one or two more comments. Five min- we have taken already taken a lot of time, so five more minutes. Yes. Uh-huh. 
Swamiji, where does the framework of Aparokshanabhuti come? Framework means? Same framework. You will notice this exact same step was done. In fact, Shankaracharya is very explicit there. In Aparokshanabhuti, you mean the text Aparokshanabhuti? Yes. So, Shankaracharya is very explicit there. First, he spends a lot of time showing you you are not the body, not the mind. Then he asks a question, what is the use of this? The separation of you from the body-mind and universe. This is dualism. This is first you must, what is the use? First you must discover yourself as the witness of body and mind. Then, having discovered the witness, you realize world, body and mind are not separate from you. How? First you are given a pot. At the end he says, what is the secret of Advaita? Four steps. First you are given a pot. Step one, pot. Step two, you are told the material cause of the pot is clay. Clay is the matter, ma material out of which the pot is built. Step two. So now you have two things. You are still holding a pot. But now you hear there is something else called clay in that, which is the material out of which the pot is built. And what is the speciality of that clay? The clay was there before the pot. The clay is there during the pot. And after the pot breaks, what, breaks, what will remain? Clay will remain. Pot has come from the clay, lives in the clay, will die in the clay. Clay is immortal. Pot is mortal. <laughs> it will die. It will be broken. So, oh, the clay must be nice then. Where is this clay? Look at the pot. Step three. As you investigate the pot, you will find top, bottom, inside, outside. What is it? Clay and clay. The clay pervades the pot through and through. Third, you will find that clay, there is, that there is no, no entity called the pot. It's clay through and through. If you ask, where is the pot? Whatever you point to will be the, whatever you touch will be the clay. What you weigh will be the clay. That means the reality is clay, not pot. There is no thing called pot. There is a name called pot hanging in the air. There is a form called pot and there is some use called which is the pot is put to. But there is no object called the pot apart from the clay. Step three. Step four. If there is no object called the pot, no product called the pot, can you call the clay the cause of the pot? If no effect is there, how can the clay be a cause? The clay alone remains beyond cause and effect. And yet you are still holding a pot. What is the magic? The magic is you are holding a pot, it has been transformed into not pot. <laughs> Only clay. How do you apply it to Advaita? Start with the world, body, mind. Step one, our experience. Now, now you are told that there is a source of uh, the reality of this experience. Step two, called existence, consciousness. Let's call it consciousness. This consciousness, which is the reality of everything, you are told. And it is immortal, it does not change, it does not die, and it's all very, very a fine thing. Oh, very nice, where is it? You examine. First step, not body, not mind. You do all that, drink the Vivek and all of that, you find out consciousness. Then you examine, you see this entire world, body, mind, none of them are apart from consciousness, because they cannot be experienced without consciousness. There's no proof of them being independent entities apart from consciousness, what we were discussing now. Step three. Step four, 
then there is no universe, no body, no mind, yeah. apart from what you call consciousness. Body, mind, universe are appearances in consciousness. Consciousness, satyam, non-consciousness, all the other, mithya, appearance. Last, four, if there is no separate product, can you call consciousness a producer? If there is no separate created, can you call consciousness a creator? If there is no effect, can you call consciousness a, a cause? No. Consciousness alone remains beyond cause and effect. Chaitanyam, consciousness alone, that is Advaita, non-duality. And yet, right here, how will it appear? Just like this. After that enlightenment, what will you see? This one only. And what name will you give? Same name. Remember, very careful, don't change language, don't change behavior. The masters tell us this. Because people become enthusiastic when they read about this, they will say, I, I've got emails. I, who am the consciousness in the body-mind previously known as Mr. Mishra, <laughs> I am offering my gratitude of thanks to the same consciousness in the body-mind called Sarvapriyananda. <laughs> Salutations. Advaita says, don't change the language. Just say, I liked your class. Thanks, Swami. It means the same thing, but don't change the language. Will you say, after realizing it is all clay, the pot, that uh, clay which appears with the name and form and function of pot, there I put the water. No. I'm putting the water in the clay, that's, in, the, in the pot, that's it. <laughs> that's it. So, language continues. Your experience of the world continues. And use, transaction, still continues. You will still drive the car, watch the TV and eat the food. Not the other way around. Hmm? <laughs> Not drive the food and eat the TV or something like that because it's all is Brahman. No. Transaction continues. Name, language continues. Experience continues. One non-dual reality alone is realized in everything. On that beautiful note, let me give the Shanti Mantra. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastum